0: Uh, it is great to be with you this morning. We are, we're continuing our series examining a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote this church in Asia Minor called Ephesus. And in this letter, Paul gets to right away writing about, one of, basically his favorite topic, the, the infinite grace of God, this, this unstoppable cosmic love that God just just talk about or just say, he expresses through Jesus Christ. Ultimately through Jesus Christ, but through gifts and through strength, through answers to prayer, but ultimately through the person of Jesus Christ. He loves us. He does something about that love. He gives us his one and only son. So Paul has just heard how this church has still more people who have believed this great news about Jesus that God loves us, that he wants to save us through Jesus Christ. And so he notices, he sees this potential in these people that that they have a trust in Jesus, that they've begun to love other Christians in their lives, the saints, and so he prays for them. For this reason, he prays for them. So read with me, starting in verse 15, Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll read through verse 23. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what it is, the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ. Now this is effectively where we left off last week. Uh, we did so because, I did so because I didn't want these next verses to get overlooked in preaching. These next verses represent the entire reason why you and I can be so confident when we pray to God, when we lift up requests to him that he cares, that he wants to do something about what we ask of him. So let's read these verses which fill us, hopefully, with such confidence as we approach God. So, praying for this might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, relocate where Jesus is in all of this and how he's relating to people like you and me, the church. Even though we cannot see him any longer, we can't physically see him with our eyes, we know he's there. And the movement of these power pack verses goes something like this, that that Jesus is the king in charge of everything. You'll see this on the notes if you want to follow along. Jesus is the king in charge of everything. The Father gives King Jesus to the church. The church represents and, and, and sort of houses the fullness of Jesus. And then Jesus fills his kingdom through the church. All right, so that's a lot of information there, but hopefully we see there's there's a movement here. Jesus is king. We learn how he becomes king and eventually how he wants to use us to advance his kingdom. And just four short verses. So let's pray before we begin properly in God's word. Father, we're thankful this morning for four packed, chalked-full verses about you, Jesus the King. We pray this morning that we would not only see you and submit to you as King, but Father, show us, open our eyes to how we can be used by you in advancing or filling in your kingdom. Use us, we pray, your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Jesus, we start with the, this first move, which is Jesus is the king in charge of everything. He's the king in charge of everything. I want you to do something for me. I want you to imagine for a moment that in your life, you had never heard of the God we worship and preach this morning. All right? You grew up never hearing about this God, about this wonderful Jesus. All right? That, that your, your mother, your mom, or your grandma never told you about Jesus. That you never heard about him in Sunday school. That a teacher or a leader never explained who he was to you, that, that you never had heard about God. Now, what do you do in life then when you face crises of many kinds? What, what, what do you do when you face joblessness, when you face poverty, uh, depression, anxiety, when, when you have a hospitalized spouse or a chronically ill child, or you just constantly feel guilt and shame in your life. What do you do with that if there is no God taking care of you? There's no king of this universe. I can tell you what the church of Ephesus did. The church of Ephesus, when there, because there's no resource inside of them that could deal with those kinds of hardships, they looked outward and began to trust in magic. They trusted in magic. And I don't mean the pull a rabbit out of the hat, right? Handkerchiefs out of your sleeves kind of magic, right? The cute kids magic shows kind of stuff. What I mean is they looked outside of themselves and tapped into forces that could actually maybe do something to help them in their lives and maybe make a difference to the lives they were leading. The historian Luke tells us in the book of Acts that during Paul's about three years in Ephesus that many of those who were now believers came that confessing and divulging their practices, these magical practices, these appealing to other spirits and higher powers to do something in their life, goes on here and say, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, does anyone here deal in silver? Silver. I didn't think so. All right, so I need to try to relate this a little better. That's the equivalent. We'll read your 50,000 pieces of silver to $6 million in today's economy. So people came forward it was $6 million, over $6 million worth of magical books, books about magic. It's a city of about 250,000 people, and the 6 million was only those who, who believed in Jesus and came forward with their books. So imagine, let's say 10,000 people came forward. That'd be three times the amount of people over three times that came at Pentecost that's still six hundred dollars per person in magical books, books about magic. All right, if I was to go on your bookshelf and I counted up the value, six hundred dollars in books on the same topic. I don't know what that would be for you. For me, it's about Jesus for me, all right, because I, I have a lot of books, I'm a pastor, I'm a nerd, all those things. But I don't know what it might be for you, you know, m- making the workday easier. Uh, right, being the leader, you know, you know where you are, uh, parenting kids, whatever it might be, I'm guessing you don't have $600 worth of books of one subject in your life. But if you did, it would surely show that this really matters to you. Like this is something you put confidence in, that maybe even you trust. And this was certainly the case for the people of Ephesus, something that deeply matters to them. But they trust Jesus. They come forward. They say, forget these books. I don't want them anymore. We're making a break with our old life. We're trusting our new life to Christ. It's wonderful. So does that mean all that temptation, the allure to sometimes appeal to other gods and other spirits just magically goes away? Is that what happens? Do all your old habits and things you trust suddenly go away when you trust Jesus? What we know is, that through Jesus, God immediately forgives the penalty of sin. He gets to work breaking the power of sin, while the presence of sin still remains in this world until Jesus comes again. All right, so he forgives all all those times that people sought these magical spirits and and, and other other quote-unquote lowercase gods, demons, really. God forgives their worship of those things. But it doesn't mean that they're never tempted again to go back to that life. One of the great ways of understanding this, a, a, a British pastor, I like a lot, a lot, an old British pastor, he actually used the uh, American slave trade to, to help us understand this. He said that, you know, back in the 19th century, uh, Abraham Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln of the United States, he emancipated the slaves. He set them for, he declared it as a law, you are free. Do you think that means every slave let their slave owner that day? No. You think it means even in the coming days, weeks, months, even years every slave acted like a free man or free woman? No. A lot of them went back to old habits. Went back to old masters because there there was comfort there. Sometimes there was food there when they couldn't find it elsewhere. It's similar to us when we trust Jesus. We are free. We have been forgiven. But sometimes we don't act like it. Sometimes we creep back into old things that we used to trust. Old ways we used to find comfort. So, like in my own life, God forgave me for finding comfort in things other than the cross. And maybe just as he forgave you for maybe finding security or comfort from money or locating your identity in your career performance, your performance as a spouse or a parent. He forgives you for seeking pleasure somewhere else other than the Creator. He forgives you for all those things those things that used to work for us, those things in which we sought comfort in, help from, He forgives us. But there are some times when we're tempted to go back to those things. The ultimate thing from your past, what is that for you? What is that ultimate thing to which you're tempted to return? Because it's still around. It still exists. And it still contains a little bit of power. What is that for you? That's, for, for the Ephesians, it was, it was magic. But now, Paul says there's a king in charge of everything. He's in, he's in charge of even those good things you used to trust and put your hope in. Those good things that aren't ultimate things. And so, Paul's a wise pastor. He reminds them again of how Jesus is king. He reminds them that Jesus has in fact risen from the dead. As helpful as magic may have been for, to them, it didn't raise people from the dead. As, as great as maybe a, a noble career might be for us, or as handy as money might be, neither can stop the decay of this life or ultimate death to come. Paul says, don't forget Jesus has risen from the dead. He's defeated death. He ascended into heaven. On your behalf. You know what he, he does up there in heaven for you? He intercedes for you on your behalf, to the Father. He sits at the Father's right hand. And whether it's spoken requests that you cry out from your heart or things you don't even know you need, Jesus presents those things to the Father and, and, and asks for the Father to work on our behalf, to graciously respond to us. This is the King who is in charge of the universe. And this is where Paul's pastoral wisdom really kicks in. Paul, so Paul generally says that here's, here's Jesus king over everything. Then he tells the Ephesians, Jesus is also king over your thing. He is king, not just sort of generally, not like we all just say that and sing that. He's king over your thing. Look at this in verse 21. Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but the age to come. Without getting into too much detail, each of these terms I just read off were used in popular incantation and magical spells back in Paul's day for the Ephesians. For example, naming the right names of spirits, if you name the right names of a spirit, that would harness their power and make them work on your behalf. And what Paul is saying is Jesus is above all of these things. He is king over all of them. What I I like about this is, is Paul doesn't pretend with religion. He, he doesn't pretend like these things don't exist. Like, I, I grew up being told by certain teachers in, in my Catholic school that you should live like you know, sex, drugs, alcohol, peer pressure, wealth. You should just live like it doesn't exist. And Paul acknowledges no, these things are real, they are powerful, they're seductive, even if you become a Christian. But Jesus is greater than all of them, He is king over all of them. Which sounds wonderful, right? But how does that matter to us? How does him being king, ruling over all powers, all names, all things matter to us? Because the Father gave King Jesus to the church. He's not just king over everything. Specifically, he's king and head of the church. Look at verse 22. He put all things under his feet, and he gave him, that's Jesus, as head over all things to the church. God has given Jesus to run our lives. And oftentimes we think about that like, man, I do not want someone to run my life. We think of that in a rebellious way. Like, this is hard. It's hard to submit to Jesus and what he wants for me. But think about what a privilege it is for Jesus to run our lives. Paul, quoting from Psalm 8 here, written a millennium earlier, David says about man, you have given... Man, dominion over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. And then he goes on to list all the things that God would put under the feet of Jesus, that he would put Jesus in charge of. And it's a huge list things in heaven, angelic beings, spirits, things we can't even see, things we can see on earth. And yet, he gives Jesus to the church. This is a tremendous privilege. The CEO of the universe is obligated to no one, yet chooses to serve the church. He's head over the whole universe, obligated to no but he chooses to serve the church. Imagine for a moment, Bill Gates was sitting in the first two rows. All right, anyone know who Bill Gates is? Right, CEO, founder of Microsoft. Imagine he's sitting in the first two rows, which is hard, because very few people sit in the first two rows, as we know. Just to throw that out there. But Bill Gates would... No, but imagine he's in our service, and, and, and he hears the message, he responds by coming up front and say, you know what, guys, I, I want to volunteer, I want to serve you and volunteer to run the church's network infrastructure. All right, Bill Gates is going to run our church's network, and we have three employees, all right, and here comes Bill Gates, he's going to run everything for us, and don't get me wrong, we need someone to run our church in- network infrastructure. I asked my friend Dave Ward, he's been in a few times help us figure out what is going on with our, with our network, our printer, our laptops, just basic things, really. We need it. We'd also start to wonder, uh, why? <laughs> like, why us? Like, one, I feel very undeserving. Uh, secondly, I'd wonder if he's wasting his talents, right? Bill Gates is a bit overqualified to do this. Well, you can see how this might relate to King Jesus. He. He could be primarily assigned to to responsibilities bigger, more important than you and me. And yet, he wants to run our lives. He wants to be the CEO of our lives. The Father gives King Jesus for this. Now, what does that look like? First, it looks like individuals submitting to the rule of a king. That's what Jesus meant when he said in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is among you in Luke 17. The kingdom of God is at hand, and you and me who submit to the king's rule. And as we do so, we're included into this body called the church. As we continue to submit to the king, his rule looks like a people in whom he breaks the power of canceled sin. Like the hymn that declares of King Jesus, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. The penalty of sin, we talked about this again, the penalty of sin has been canceled because of what Jesus did on the cross. But gradually, as we look to Jesus and submit to Jesus, he breaks the power. Remember, we have been emancipated, but it takes some time before we stop acting like slaves. Before we're going back to old things that we love and we trust. But as we submit to Jesus, he continues to loosen the power of those old things. That's especially the ultimate thing we used to look to for help, for comfort in our lives. Gradually it loses its attractiveness, its luster, if you will. Because Jesus becomes more attractive. We see him as more powerful. We see him as more authoritative, more pleasurable, more secure, more defining in our lives. And so, in order to, br- to, to facilitate breaking away from sin and its power in our lives, Jesus does something even more gracious. It's the third movement in our passage. It's this. It, we see that the church becomes the house. The church houses the fullness of King Jesus. Look at verse 23. The church which is his body, the fullness of him, the fullness of Jesus. This is a pretty big deal because so often I find as, as a pastor in the last 15, 16 years, when people are struggling, when they're really struggling, when they're feeling anxious, when they're just feeling down, when they're feeling ashamed because of something they've done in their lives or for living a, a secret life, they, what they do is run from church. We, we say we take a break from church. And, and I want to be sympathetic to that because I understand when you come to church, it's full of imperfect people like myself. And so there might be times you feel judged or or, or there's just people and it makes you feel anxious. I I, want to be really sympathetic to that. And yet, what do we read here in this passage? That the church is the people where the fullness of King Jesus dwells. I was so glad this week when someone shared with me that they'd recently returned to church because they're at a hard place in their life. As they shared this, I... I was actually, I'd been reading Ephesians 1 here, and I was able to say, you know what, that's awesome. Not a lot of people return to church, but I've just been learning how there is no place like church where Jesus' presence dwells. There's no other place like it. Like the gathered church together, that's what I've been learning. And so you came to the right place. You came to be with the right people, because this is where you're going to get help for your life. Even just using the the, the metaphor of body to describe us. What a privilege. Because when Jesus ministered on earth, he had a body, right? He wasn't just a spirit. He had eyes which noticed injustice and expressed compassion. He had ears which heard the cries of people. He heard their deepest needs. He had a mouth by which he expressed the good news about his kingdom. He had feet which brought him to new places from where he could express that good news again. He had hands that healed and nurtured. After rising from the dead and ascending into heaven, Jesus left behind a physical body by leaving us. By leaving us behind. He left behind a physical body, and that is is us. What a privilege that together we get to be the body in which the presence of Jesus most fully rests. And this isn't just talk here on Sundays or inspirational words to sort of encourage you during the week. Jesus leaves to his body, leaves the church, God the Holy Spirit, to dwell inside of us that we might become more and more like Jesus and be empowered to make right decisions. He leaves us spiritual gifts, special individualized gifts for each person so, you can, so we can serve one another. And of course, he leaves to us and us alone the good news. Even angels long to look into this good news, but, but, but he's only entrusted it to his church. Wonderful. So he didn't just say, hey, I'm with you guys. He actually empowered us. He filled us full with his presence in a very practical and giving and generous way. The world can't experience, we can't experience each of these gifts apart from the gathered church. Think about it. The Holy Spirit Spiritual gifts, the gospel. Some of us, you know, sometimes you want to I get click on a podcast maybe on a Sunday morning or stay at home and watch CBN on, on, on the tube. And sometimes that's necessary because maybe you're sick or you're infirmed or whatever. I'm not. But what can't you You can't get spiritual gifts. You can't get people ministering to one another. You can't get people caring for one another with a gift God's given them. That's unique to the church. What a privilege. And with that privilege comes an awesome but empowered responsibility. Here it is. Here's the fourth movement of our passage. Jesus fills in his kingdom through the church. Verse 23. We've been talking about the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And if you've been around church for a while or church culture, you've read some Christian books, those sorts of things, you often hear interchangeably these terms, the kingdom, God's kingdom, God's church, and it's kind of thrown around. And you're like, yeah, it kind of means the same thing, right? God's kingdom, and God's church. It doesn't mean the exact same thing. And there's one difference that Paul actually gives us right here. The church is the instrument through which King Jesus fills his kingdom. The church is the instrument through which King Jesus fills his kingdom. Through the church, King Jesus fills all. And there's this ongoing process at work right now in which, slowly but steadily, Jesus is filling in the blanks, if you will, of his kingdom. To help, me, help us make sense of what I think Paul is driving at here, allow me to give a kind of rudimentary illustration. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Brett and I swapped. Pastor swapped. Right? He preached out here. I, I served back there with the, the kids specifically. Uh, a younger elementary class, 6- to 8-year-olds approximately, 12 of them, 12 of them wonderful children. I mean, really great experience, wonderful children, 10 of them really pleasant and great to be around and that sort of thing. I'm oh, just, just kidding, 11 at least. Uh, you know, you, I'm, your kids are all great, they're all wonderful. I, so once we get together, all of them, and it, it's such a wonderfully run class, so it was really great to be part of it. We, we gathered together on the mat. We all kind of got down, and we get these coloring sheets. And as kids are coming in, you kind of do the coloring sheet. And we were, we were going through uh, the Lord's Supper, and so they filled in these coloring sheets about the Lord's Supper. And as you can see here, this is what they, they basically did. Uh, a number of them filled in the entire sheet like this. Okay, here you go. Look at this artistry right here. Wonderful. And then they filled some in like this. You know, some filled it in part way. You know, they got the, so we have this outline here where you can fill things in, but there you go. And then finally, you know, some kids came in late, a little bit later, and they didn't, you know, just blank, just blanksies. That's all, that's all they did. Jesus' his kingdom has come. He has, if you will, forged an outline for his kingdom. He rules Far above all rule, authority, power, dominion above every name that is name, and yet his kingdom hasn't been fully realized, fully filled in. There's lots of empty spaces to still fill in, fill in. Many people who, who have yet to willingly submit to Jesus the King. And that's where the church comes in. Our privilege is that King Jesus would use us to color in his kingdom. And if you take away nothing else, take this. Those of you who already know Christ, He wants to use us, His church, to fill in the blank spaces, to fill in His kingdom. One day His kingdom will be fully realized, it'll, it'll be fully filled in like this. But until that day, He uses us, His church, filling all in all. That's what He does. How does He fill in His kingdom? by using us to bring to bear all the colors of his presence, right? To bring, whenever we meet with someone, bringing the Holy Spirit, bringing, bringing that gift to serve someone else, with our mouths bringing the good news. That's what we do. So when you, you meet with a friend over coffee who has spousal struggles, marital struggles, you, you bring the Holy Spirit with you. You bring a life dedicated to God. You, you bring a gift to serve that person. You, you bring the good news of the gospel. And when you sit down with, with, a, with a kid, with your child who just feels despondent, you know, a lack of self-worth, you bring the Holy Spirit. You bring a gift to them. You bring the good news. When you sit around with a coworker who's working late at night with you and they're discontent with their job, you've brought the Holy Spirit with you. You bring them a gift to serve them. You bring them the good news. We bring to bear the colors of God's presence into people's lives as we live our lives. That's what we get to do to color in God's kingdom. Jesus fills all in all. He does this by taking residence in us and then using us and then entering into other people who welcome them into his heart, who say, I want Jesus as Lord also. Paul writes Ephesians, you know, 30 years after the ministry of Jesus. That means an entire generation had passed. None of them had ever seen Jesus There were fewer of your visitors who came along who had actually witnessed Jesus. They said, I saw Jesus when he was alive. So you could understand maybe some whispers that went around. Where is Jesus now? Where is Jesus? What's he doing? What difference does he make in my life? What difference does he make to us compared to all the good things that I used to trust in my life that made a difference sometimes? Maybe you have the same questions. You don't see Jesus but there's an empty tomb. And you have to explain that. You have to account for that. Paul says the best way to account for it is that Jesus is risen from the dead. He's ascended the right hand of God, proving that he is the king of the universe. God has given the king to the church. We get to to house the fullness of that king. And, And through us, the fullness of King Jesus, he uses us, to color in the rest of his kingdom, for people to hear the good news and submit to him as king. So no, we may not see Jesus, but among those whom we live, they'll see his body, because his body is us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your words this morning. We thank you for being our king and running our lives. We don't deserve it. I just think to myself all week, Why would you want to run life like mine? (laughs) Why would you want to get caught up in this? And yet you love us. And you set your love upon us by filling us with your Holy Spirit, with spiritual gifts, with the good news that we might share all the colors of your presence with other people. That you might use us to fill in your kingdom. God, give us a vision for that. Give Give us a heart for that in our lives, that anywhere we go, in any way... Any person we meet with can be influenced by you, our King, and just may want to submit to you also. Please give us the courage and the trust that you want to use us in life. In Jesus' name, amen.